Hello, I'm Ian Beaumont, back with another edition of the program that brings you life, the universe, and other strangeness. This is the Viewpoint Podcast, and it starts now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for downloading and listening to this podcast. I've noticed something this week that caused me to completely rethink how I view the major political parties in the UK. And it wasn't just one thing, but a number of different things that combined to paint a picture that isn't very flattering to politicians and political parties these days. Let's start with a local situation in Cornwall that highlighted a problem that has been overlooked by many the privatisation of public transport. It was revealed on Friday that Western Greyhound, a Newquay-based bus company which had served routes in Cornwall and Devon, had ceased trading and all the jobs had been lost. But more importantly, a large number of services from St Moors to Exeter had just suddenly stopped and had left thousands of passengers unable to get to their workplaces and indeed unable to do many other essential trips, such as shopping trips. The privatisation of the National Bus Company was one of Margaret Thatcher's policies of her Conservative government during the 1980s. The company was split into 70 different entities, including National Express, Western National and Plymouth City Bus, and sold off. Today, 70% of the UK bus system is dominated by five operators. National Express, First, Go Ahead, Arriva and Stagecoach. Now, I see four of those companies in my area. Only Arriva isn't represented. Okay, so far, so predictable. Nothing particularly crazy about anything so far. But there are many things about how this private system works that doesn't make sense when you look at it more closely. For instance, each bus route is only operated by one operator. Now the idea of this was to make sure that operators bid for all routes and not just the popular ones. Well that's fine, except you don't get competition between operators on popular routes. And the opportunity to drop prices to tempt people away from their chosen operator. Now, whilst the route between Plymouth and St. Budo, for instance, does have two operators, that's primarily because one operator only operates that precise route, and the other one operates a route from Barn Barton to Plimpton, which also encompasses that same route to St. Budo to Plymouth in their service. But when you have profitable routes such as Truro to Penzance that have never had any bus competition at all on them, and the fact that First, who operate uh, the bus franchise, they took over Western National, also operate the Great Western Rail franchise as well, you have a single company with a dominant position abusing that power. Between Truro and Falmouth, you can only travel on first if you're going by public transport. First Great Western on the branch line, first Kerno on the buses. There are no competitors for that route. This allows first Great Western 
to keep their prices low, whilst First Kono charged top prices for the bus route. It makes no sense at all. Meanwhile this week we've also seen previously sensible or at least resembling sensible politicians go screaming headlong into the world of political craziness. Former Labour Prime Minister Gordon Brown said that Britain would become the North Korea of Europe if we severed ties with Brussels. What? In an opinion piece he wrote for The Guardian, Mr. Brown wrote that leaving the EU would represent economic disaster for the UK. Quote, of course, we must tell the truth about the 3 million jobs, 25,000 companies, 200 billion pounds of annual exports, and 450 billion of inward investment linked to Europe, and how the Britsaland, or Norwegian alternatives, brackets, even Norwegians oppose the Norwegian option, close brackets, leaves us subject to EU rules but denied a vote in shaping them. And we must talk about how the Hong Kong option quote, leaving Europe to join the world, unquote, is really the North Korea option, out in the cold with few friends, no influence, little new trade, and even less new investment, unquote. His contention is based upon how this government has badly handled its dealings with the EU, again, quote, it would be sheer defeatism to cast ourselves as skeptics do, as helpless victims, impotent bystanders, unable to influence events. Our destiny is not a bit player on someone else's stage or a spectator hectoring from the wings, but always setting the agenda, bringing people together and championing change. Being half in, half out, a Britain that is semi-detached and disengaged, the Britain of the empty chair even when we are in the room, has made us weaker than ever, irrelevant on Greece, fringe player on climate change, mere spectator in the debate that could have shaped a European pro-growth policy, marginal on Ukraine with ministers sounding ludicrous as simultaneously they say Russia must be confronted with a more united Europe and by the way we are thinking of leaving. <laughs> yeah, the irony of UK ministers talking about uniting Europe against Russian aggression, while at the same time threatening to leave the EU, has not been lost on me. But let's be honest here. All this talk of losing millions of jobs, thousands of companies, billions of pounds of exports and investment is purely scaremongering of the worst kind. London was the financial capital of Europe long before the EU or any of its predecessors ever existed. So we're not looking at major companies and whole industries suddenly not trading with us. That's not going to happen. The EU won't suddenly stop trading with the UK. Many other countries worldwide won't suddenly stop trading with the UK. That's not on the agenda here. What is on the agenda? It's things like farm subsidies and Objective One money that is mostly spent outside of London. If this government controlled that spending instead of the EU, it would mostly get concentrated in London, like most government spending is now. The regions wouldn't even see half as much cash as they do now. So don't try to scaremonger us, Gordon, not again. 
You succeeded once with Scotland, preventing a vote for Scottish independence, but there's an old saying. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not buying your scares this time. Just like I'm not buying into the scaremongering of Sir Gus O'Donnell, a former member of David Cameron's government. He said that the predicted surge in SNP seats will raise legitimacy questions about our first-past-the-post voting system. Really? You think the British public is that stupid? To not realise that, as a regional party, the SNP's share of the vote on a UK scale is pretty much irrelevant? If you want to talk about legitimacy questions of our voting system, then I can give you some that have existed for all my life. Such as how come an MP can only get 25% of the votes in the constituency, but be considered to have a majority? Why is it that the winning line for individual constituencies isn't a fixed 50% plus one vote of the total number of votes cast? And why do you think that national share of the vote has any actual relevance about to how we vote in individual constituencies where we're voting for an MP and not for a government? Actually, he does understand that. He has said as much. Quote, What matters for our parliamentary system and who is the government is seats, not votes. End quote. So why are you even concerned about the national share of the vote and how that would affect the legitimacy? It's never had that effect before. Despite parties winning the election and forming a government, we're a mere 40% of the vote. And all the talk this week about who should form a coalition with who has done the major political parties no favours at all. Lord Baker saying that the Conservatives and Labour should form a grand coalition to keep the SNP out. A Tory MP saying he will resign the party whip if the leadership does a deal with UKIP. Labour MP Alan Johnson also recommending a grand coalition between Labour and the Tories. David Cameron trying to press Ed Miliband into saying he won't do a deal with, an S- with the SNP. The list goes on and on. And all the while it is revealing a very uncomfortable truth about today's political parties and professional politicians. The difference now between Labour, the Liberal Democrats and the Tories is so minuscule as to be non-existent. They seem to be mere brand names now, with very little real difference in policy or ideology. And we can blame Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair for that. But as much as we might say a conservative UKIP coalition would be a disaster, which it would, uh, or that the SNP being involved in a coalition would lead to the breakup of the UK, which, to be honest, is looking likely no matter who wins, none of these things are what either the Tories or Labour want to be thinking about. They're setting their sights on 326 seats, outright victory. But given the fact that such a situation is very unlikely to happen, I think we'll be hearing much more talk about coalitions all the way until the next government is actually formed. But here's the thing. The craziness we have seen this week from all the major political parties will have one 
major impact and that is to slowly drive votes away to people like the Greens to the SNP to Plaid Cymru to UKIP and possibly as well to the BNP and abandoning one form of craziness for another that does nobody any favours perhaps it's time to consider changing the entire system that's the Viewpoint Podcast I'm Ian Beaumont thanks for listening see you next week stay sharp stay tuned